relations. And one of the reasons why I like to do that is because, um, especially in our day and age, there are certain scriptures we want to avoid because they cause controversy. There are scriptures where men have said certain things, and it's like, well, let's just not preach on that because it's going to make people mad. The problem with that approach is that it's still the word of God, and it still needs to be known. And we don't need to make excuses for God. We need to know who God is. And if this is his word, then we want to study it. And by going verse by verse through the book of Galatians, we will get to know God a little bit better. So turn with me to the book of Galatians. And um, if you remember, go back to kindergarten. Some of you, that's going to be quite a journey. But go back to kindergarten. One of the things that uh, teachers – I remember my teacher saying is you, know, you, need, you need to put on your thinking cap. Remember that? Thinking cap. Put on your thinking caps, kids. We're going to, uh, we're going to be doing some stuff. Well, we're adults now. We don't put on thinking caps. I'm going to ask you to put on your imagination beret. This is much more classy for adults. Put that on today. I want you to imagine with me a scenario. I want you to put yourself in it. Now, some of you are in this scenario. So um, uh, it won't be that hard to uh, imagine. But imagine for just a moment that you are uh, an inventor, a creator. You have a product that you want to sell. It's, it's an ingenious invention. It's a pair of shoes that dry themselves kind of like in Back to the Future 2. Remember the Nike, the self-drying, the self-lacing Nikes? That would be awesome. Still waiting for those. But let's say you finally cracked it. You, you've done it. And so you go to uh, a place with a lot of people, someplace like a, a New York City, a Los Angeles, um, maybe even a city in the south like Atlanta or something like that. You're going to start there, and you're going to market your product there. That's where you're going to launch it. You want to get to the most people. You want to have the most uh, exposure possible. So you've got this great product, and you take it, and, and, and instantly people latch onto it because they're electric shoes. How are you not going to latch onto that? So everything's going well, and you decide, okay, I've done so well in this market. I'm going to go from Los Angeles. Now I'm going to go to New York City, and I'm going to go. I'm going to, I'm going to take my product, and I'm going to start selling it there. Same thing happens. Explosive. Everybody's got to have a pair. It's great. And so you begin moving. You go to different places. You create somewhat of a, of a circuit. You get back to your original location. You get back there to check on your business to see how they're doing, and you find out that they're selling toaster ovens. And you walk up and to whoever's in charge and say, I left you with a certain product, and now you're selling something completely different. What gives? Well, this sells better. More people eat than buy electric shoes, so toaster ovens made more sense. But that's not what I invented. That's not what I created. I'm not in the toaster oven business because it's 1973 and we're still using toaster ovens. What happened to my original project? What happened to my original invention? Well, I just, you know, we improved upon it. And we improved upon it and we improved upon it and we improved upon it till finally we decided more people want toaster ovens than they do these fancy shoes of yours. As the president, CEO, owner, inventor of that company, brand, and product, you would be outraged that someone somewhere had taken your product and changed it without you knowing. 
And what's worse is they're not even selling the same thing anymore. They've changed it into their own vision. They've changed it into what they want or what they perceive the public to want without coming back to you. So, okay, imagination berets off. Now, I tell you that story to give you a little bit of an understanding about the book of Galatians. The Bible's not just just random stuff said by people. Every word that is said in the word of God is the word of God, first off. But secondly, it involved real people in real times and real scenarios with real problems, just like us. If you remember the sermon from last week, um, you had people on Palm Sunday uh, exalting Jesus. Hosanna! Hosanna to, to the son of David. By the end of the week, they're, they're screaming, crucify him, crucify him. Same people. We are just as fickle as those people. C.S. Lewis called it chronological snobbery. When you look back at people of the past and say, oh, they were so primitive. Oh, we're not like, we're so evolved past that. And, and no, that's human nature at its core. We, like the people in the Bible and biblical times, we share that same human nature. And so the book of Galatians was written at a specific time to a specific people for a specific reason. And so what happened is Paul, the apostle who we learn about in the New Testament, God used mightily, went to this place called Galatia, which is basically modern-day Turkey, and began to plant churches. He went, he would preach the gospel in local synagogues and in any place he could, really, and churches would spring up. Pastors would be appointed, congregations would build up, and they'd build all these churches. When Paul was done in Galatia, he moved on to a new place. But as time went on, as Paul, you know, the days before internet and, and, and fast travel and, and all of that, um, he would do this on foot or by, you know, on, on the back of some type of animal. Eventually he gets back to Galatia and finds out that the original message that was preached has now been changed. The original gospel that he brought to them has now been turned into something else. If I can give you this sermon series in a nutshell, it's this, that the gospel plus anything equals nothing. Paul is going to come back and not contend that the gospel is not being preached. He's going to contend that there is no longer any gospel there. So in our modern day, we have things like prosperity theology or the prosperity gospel. We also have the exact opposite, which is called pro, uh, poverty gospel or poverty theology. Prosperity gospel says God wants you to be rich and healthy and never sick. Poverty gospel says God wants you to be poor and you prove your godliness by your poorness and you got to give everything away. And both of those are an error. Both of them are not biblical. And when you take the gospel and you add something to it, you put it on top – you actually take away the gospel. So when I preach to you the pureness, or, or my hopes is the pureness, the holiness, the, 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 the sanctified word of God, my hope is to never add to it or take from it. Because the last thing I want to do is deplete or take away the actual gospel. So that being said, turn to Galatians chapter 1. As you're doing that, chapter 1, verse 1, we're going to do a little background on Galatians. It was what we call an epistle. How many people use that word? None of you. Nobody uses that word unless you're, you find it in your Bible, the epistle of you know, 
to the Galatians. An epistle is like a love letter. So when you go home and then tomorrow rolls around and the mail gets delivered and you get a bill from National Grid, that's not an epistle. That's not a love letter, right? You don't open that one up and go, oh boy, I get to give them money again. IRS sends you a letter. That's certainly not an epistle, right? If you get a letter from the IRS, you can almost count that it's going to be bad news, not good news. They never send you letters saying, hey, just checking in on you. want to make sure everything's okay. It's usually, hey, this is going to cost you a lot. That's not an epistle. That's not a love letter. But say you get a, a, a letter from an aunt or a grandmother or a relative, and they just want to check in on you. Maybe it's an email. Maybe it's a text message. Maybe it's an actual archaic ancient letter written by hand in something called a pen. Maybe it's something like that. And you read and you, you get their heart. You understand that they love you. They're, they're asking not to uh, for any other reason other than they just love you and want to know more about you. They want to be in relation with you. And so they tell you about their life and they ask you about your life. And, and it demands some type of a response. And you're going to have to respond either through a text message or an email or a letter. And, and then you're going to share yourself. This, these epistles... Uh, starting in Romans, going through to uh, to Jude, right before the book of Revelation, these are called epistles. There were some written by a man named Paul, and that's who we'll focus on today. There were some written by a man named Peter. We find him in the, the New Testament Gospels. Uh, John, uh, the beloved disciple. You've got Jude. You've got the, the epistle to the Hebrews, which no, we don't know who wrote that. Um, tradition says maybe Paul, but we're not really sure. Um, and we've got all these letters. And they're like love letters to these churches. And so before the days of, of mass communication, a church pastor would get this letter or a copy of this letter and read it to the congregation. And for 2,000 years, that's what we've been doing. We've been reading through these letters that men like Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to correct and rebuke and to encourage Christians, to bring new Christians in, to teach those who have, been, who have given their life to Jesus to reveal to us Jesus, to remind us of what he's done and what, why he needed to do it in the first place. And so this love letter, this epistle, comes from that perspective. I want you to know that when God communicates through you, especially through his word, it's from a position of love. God loves his people. God loves you. God loves his church. There's a big movement nowadays to bash the church. If you're a Christian, bash the church because honestly, we're an easy target. We mess up all the time. It's always in the news. There's always some pastor doing something really stupid, and we all get a black eye because of it. And some, so some Christians have decided, you know what? I'm going to join in on the bashing because it's so easy, and we'll exalt Jesus while bashing the church. The problem is Jesus died for his church. Jesus loves his church, and when you bash his church, it's like you're bashing him. It's not that the church is infallible and can't mess up because we rightly deserve some of the criticism we receive in the big church as a whole. But for Christians to begin bashing the church is completely opposite of what God wants to do. If you want to see church change, become part of a church and be a change. Show them what Jesus is about. I don't want to go to churches full of hypocrites. Good. Join the crowd. We're all hypocrites. Let's all have a big hypocrite party and get better. It's like saying, I don't want to go to the gym. It's full of fat people. Well, why do you think they're going to the gym? I go to the gym because I'm so big. I don't go there for, you know, the germs and the sweat. I go there so that I can lose weight. So bashing the church is, is, is never going to end up 
end up well, what you're going to do is just join the non-believers in a big bashing fest. Paul writes to them not to bash them, but to correct them. Totally different. God speaks to us not to not to condemn us, but to correct us, to keep us from condemnation. Like you warning your child not to run into the street because, you know, there's cars and they will hit you and they will kill you. You tell them, come back. Don't go out there. Don't run and play out on Route 31. Come back. That's love. Your child turns around and says, you're being hypocritical. You ran out in that street before. Yes, that's why I know it's so dangerous. And God warns us and God tells us and he extends grace to, to not to condemn us, but to warn us and to show us. And at the root of that is love. If you've ever kept your children from doing something that would hurt them, you know that you've done it out of love. You haven't done it to keep them from something. Even if the child turns around and says, you just don't want me to be happy. No, I just don't want you to be hurt or worse, dead. And understand that that's a reflection of God, our Father's heart. So Paul writes this letter to this church that he started. He planted these churches... And it's not necessarily one specific church. It's the churches in the region. And it's believed that the book of Galatians, the letter to the Galatians, was written somewhere between the years 40 and 60 AD, right around 50 AD, somewhere in there. Most historical evidence points to that time frame. Jesus, we believe, rose, or, or excuse me, died, uh, was resurrected and ascended around 30 to 33 AD. So we're talking just, just over a decade of time has passed, where Paul is now writing back to this church to correct them. You might think, Pastor Troy, that's a long time. Like, ten years, wow. I don't remember what happened ten days ago. What about, I don't know, about ten years ago. That might be true. Let me ask you this. Could you tell me where you were and what you were doing on September 11th? Absolutely. We all remember. Most of us were sitting in front of a television, watching something like CNN or Fox News, and watching this chaos. We remember the lighting. We remember uh, uh, what time of day it was. I know personally I remember calling my parents in California who were completely oblivious to what was happening because of the time difference. It happened early morning here. It's still, you know, still dark over there, 5, 6 o'clock in the morning. I can tell you about something that grand, and I remember that, and you remember that. Paul will say, you knew about Jesus. It was as though you were there when he was crucified. You know about this. This is not something I'm telling you brand new. You knew the truth, and now the truth has been distorted. This event was more than just, hey, this guy named Jesus died. No, it changed everything. If you know Jesus today, it changes everything about you. It changes how you look at the world. It changes how you look at your children and how you're going to raise them. It changes just how you view everything, how you're going to earn money, how you're going to treat people, how you're going to get ahead. Hey, come over here and do this. We'll get a little extra money if you just do it this way. Um, yes, it's technically cheating and lying, but you know, you'll make a few extra bucks. I can't do that. It's cheating and lying. Oh, you're one of those holy rollers. Yes, Jesus wants me to be honest. And I think that's a good thing regardless of what the world might be doing. Who were the Galatians? I find it funny. I, so there are these things called Bible dictionaries. If you've never used one, they're not intimidating. They're just like a regular dictionary. You find a topic, you look it up, and there are men who are very intelligent, women who are very intelligent, very scholarly, who have dedicated lifetime, a lifetime uh, 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 to the learning about different subjects in the Bible. 
Maybe, maybe it's just how bread was used in biblical times. What type of recipes they used? Was it whole wheat? Was it this? Was it that? Did they use spelt? I mean, what kind of bread did they use in this era, in that era, in that era? So when the Bible talks about bread, what are they referring to? When you begin to explore who the Galatians were, here's the biblical definition of them. They were susceptible of quick impressions and sudden changes with a fickleness equal to their courage and enthusiasm and a constant liability to that disunion, which is the fruit of excessive vanity. They were easily impressed. They were quick to latch on to anything. They were fickle, so they abandoned everything quickly. As soon as something new came in, no, that's not right. We got this new thing. This is it. And then time passed. This is old and boring. Hey, that's new and flashy. Let's go latch on to that. They're very courageous. They'd stand up for anything, but the problem is they're standing up for the wrong thing. So when you're courageous, but you're standing up for what is wrong, that's not good. Is it just me, or do the Galatians sound like first, just first century Americans? That's what we do. We latch on to everything. Oh, it's American Idol. We've got to watch American Idol. Gotta, no, I don't like American Idol anymore. Oh, The Voice. We've got to watch The Voice. It's a totally different show. Is it really? People who can sing on a show. It just seems like the same thing to me. But no, this is the new thing. No, we got this now. No, we got this now. I need this reality television series. I need, I need the one about the ducks. I need the one about the alligators. I need the one about the guy who's crazy and just climbs trees all day. It's completely different. Do you remember not six months ago, Walmart was basically Duck Dynasty gift shop? I mean, you could go in there and you could buy cleaner from the Duck Dynasty guys, and I'm not down on the Duck Dynasty guys at all. This is not a knock on them at all. I'm just saying, you go into Walmart, it's like, wow, it's, it's, a, it's a Duck Dynasty gift shop with a food section. Went by the other day, gosh, this is beginning of the year. Went by the other day, all that stuff's on an end cap now on clearance because we're fickle. Even the fans of the show are fickle, ready to latch onto something and then just let go for the new thing. Oh, this thing now. And that was the Galatians. We don't have to stretch our imaginations too much to realize what, the, what kind of people the Galatians were. They were just like us. They were just like me. I do the same thing. Ask my wife. The minute I buy a guitar, it's the guitar. I had to have that one. That's not mine, by the way. I'm borrowing that one. Gotta have that. If I just had that one, then everything would be okay. I'd play better songs. The thing practically plays itself. As soon as I grab it, play it three times. Hey, look at that one. Oh, that's a good guitar. This thing, that one, that's the good. And maybe your thing's not guitars. Maybe it's cars. Maybe it's boats. Maybe it's motorcycles. Maybe it's the type of coffee you drink. As soon as you get that one, it's like, oh, this is the best. Hey, what about that over there? You barely have time to enjoy it before you're looking for something else. That's the Galatians. That's who they are. This is why bad theology was able to sweep in and take over. This is why lies were able to, to come in, permeate the actual teaching, and completely remove the gospel. Because they're just like you and me. There is no them and us. It's all of us and what we're susceptible to. So when you read through the book of Galatians, I don't want you to think about those people. I want you to look at yourself. I want you to see that the Lord is speaking to you and talking to you about your proclivities and your, your nature and your tendencies. That you're not unlike anybody else. 
know, we are all special and God loves us all and blah, blah, blah. But in our human nature and core in essence, we're all the same. We, we all have that, that, that same fickleness that just comes in different flavors and varieties. Here's the, the main verse for this whole series. Turn to chapter 3. You shouldn't have to go too far. Chapter 3, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Has nothing to do with the television show Bewitched. Has nothing to do with witchcraft. Has nothing to do with casting spells or anything like that. It's a particular word that only Paul uses in this one instance in the whole Bible. To put it in our modern everyday vernacular, it's as though Paul is saying, who has conned you? Anybody ever fallen prey to a good con artist? Maybe it's not a guy in a slick suit. Maybe it's a guy on the street. I'm homeless. I have no money. Please help out. And then later you see them buying a car with cash. And you realize, oh, um, that's just their job. And there are real homeless people, and there are people who are completely destitute and need our help. But that wasn't one of them. And you realize, ah, I gave with the right heart, but probably shouldn't have done that. Or maybe it's going to the state fair, and you know they've got the wonder mop and the super chopper and all this other stuff, and they make it seem so simple. You know, they got the pots and pans where. You just add water and you cook it and you put a lid on it and it cooks everything perfectly. And then you get it home and you burn everything and nothing tastes good. And it's like, what in the world? I spent $400 on this set of pots and pans that didn't do anything. This mop is horrible. And they gave me two. What am I supposed to do with this now? You're conned. You're conned. Every day we hear about Warnings, especially for the elderly and the young. Warning, there's people calling and scamming. We're from here, we're from there. We need your information. We need your passwords. We need, we need to come, on, come into your premises. We need to gain access to you somehow. And those who are naive and still believe that, that, that this cannot happen, oh, sure, here's my social security number. Oh, sure, here's my internet pa here's my password to this and password to that. Okay, you, okay, we got everything we need. We'll just take care of it from here. Can't. Paul says, who has conned you? Who has come in? Because here's the thing about con artists. Con artists, they don't come in with a big sign that says, I'm a con. I'm here to deceive you. They don't look, they look like everybody else. They don't look completely different. They come in looking like everybody else, sounding like everybody else, relating to you with the same exact problems, if not just a little more, you know, a little more grave. Because you're being played. You're being conned. They are conniving. And that's what has happened with these false teachers. They've come in, they look the part, they sound the part, they're talking about Jesus, they're referring to Scripture, but they're conning the Galatians into their own teaching. They look the part, they dress the part, but there's something about a wolf in sheep's clothing. Eventually you see the fangs. Eventually you see the blood dripping from their mouths, and you realize, oh, this is not a sheep, this is a wolf. And Paul writes to them, who has bewitched you? Who has conned you? And he goes on to tell them, you guys aren't teaching a different flavor of the gospel. You're teaching no gospel. He says, who's coming with a different gospel? Not that there's a different gospel. There is gospel and that's it. Gospel is just good news. 
The good news that while we are still sinners, Jesus died for our sins. That responding to that in faith, you are then saved. That through no works of what you have done, but through all the works that Jesus has done, you have been saved. You simply exercise faith and belief. And when you do that, you're given the Holy Spirit and it changes everything. Changes everything. You now embark on this lifelong process that we call sanctification and regeneration. The Bible never talks about how we need to just be better people. The Bible says we need to be transformed, completely different, changed from the inside out, because it's that core of who we are that is corrupt. See, we're not just good people who make bad choices. We're bad people who somehow occasionally stumble into good stuff, like a blind squirrel who occasionally finds a nut. We're, we're like that. We're, we're bad, all of us. The Bible says that we're all sinners who fall short of the glory of God, all of us. And we all need a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus. So Paul's call, or calling, Paul's writing to correct this. The good, part of the good news is that Jesus loves you so much, he'd rather die for you than have you die for your own sins. The whole point of Resurrection Sunday and Easter and the cross is that your death on that cross is insufficient. You are an imperfect sacrifice. Should you say, you know what, I've sinned, I will die for my sins, it doesn't satisfy the wrath of God because you've offered up an imperfect sacrifice, which is you. It's why we need Jesus to die. It's why somebody else can't die for us. We couldn't go and say, you know what, I'm a sinner, but my dad's going to die in my place. Does that satisfy? No, imperfect, just like you. We need the perfect son of God to die on our behalf. That's, feel that weight today. That's the gravity of your sin. That is how big your sin is, that the God of all the universe has to come down and die for it. Sin's not just, if you're feeling okay about your sin today, realize God had to die for it. Let that kind of sink in. Let that wreck you a little bit and realize, oh man, no matter what I think about my sin, God sees it like this. God sees it as war between us, as enmity. It's a separation. It's a gap. And I'm, I, am, I am deserving of the wrath of God. I'm deserving of the condemnation of God. I'm deserving of hell fire. That's why Jesus died. While you are deserving of that, he loves you. And rather than have you go through that, he'd go through it for you. Many of you, if you've ever been, if you've ever, you know, the first thought I thought when my son was diagnosed with leukemia was, I wish it could be me. I wish I could take this from him. I wish I could do it. You know, I, I don't know what he's feeling. I don't know what he's going through. I don't know what it's like when they insert the needle into his port that's in his chest and they inject uh, the chemotherapy or what they, you know, when they put him to sleep and they inject chemo into his spine and they pull out spinal fluid. I, why can't that just be me? Why can't I sacrifice myself for my son? And you've probably felt that same emotion, that same thing when, when someone you loved has, has gone through something like that. You see, while we desire it and want it, God has done it. God has so loved us and seen us in our sickly condition, which is called sin, and decided to die for our sin rather than have us die for it. This is, this is the good news. This is the gospel that Paul is preaching of. This is what he's calling back to the Galatians, what he's telling them, what he's reminding them of. What has happened is a very specific group have come in. 
We don't have this problem here in this church per se. Um, what they had come in was a group called the Judaizers. Now, I'm not here to throw the Jewish people under the bus. That's another way people try to preach the gospels, by throwing Jews under the bus. That's anti-Semitic, and that's not what the Bible says. Okay? The Bible says that God loves his people, and you better love his people too. Okay? But these Judaizers said, okay, we've got Jesus, we get that, but you need Jesus and circumcision. And I would submit that if you need Jesus and circumcision, you ladies are in trouble. Because you're just totally ruled out of the equation there, aren't you? You need Jesus and the works of the law. That you need Jesus and this, and you need Jesus and that. When you have Jesus and, it means nothing. Jesus plus something equals nothing. No more Jesus. It's not that you have a new flavor, a new variety, or you've contemporized it. You've just totally abandoned it to go towards something else. This is why, personally, I find the prosperity gospel abhorrent. I, I hate it because it's not the gospel. I find myself occasionally watching videos of these preachers and ministers. I don't know why. And my wife pray for her because she's like, why are you watching those again? I guess I just want to feel mad. I don't know. But I listen to the bad doctrine, the bad theology, the bad teaching in the name of Jesus. And I see multitudes of people flocking to it and saying, yes, this is Jesus. And it's not. It's just not. A simple reading through the Bible on your own, by yourself, front to back, as daunting as that might be, will show you the truth and show you the truth quickly. You might say, Pastor Tony, I'm not, I'm not scholarly. I'm not, I'm not one of those guys that went to college. I'm not, I'm not book smart. You know what? Neither were most of the disciples. The men that Jesus picked out to follow him were the ones who didn't make it to seminary, were the ones who didn't make it as the, ra the rabbi's prodigy or the rabbi's uh, next in line as a teacher. They were the ones that were told, you know what? Go do your father's work. Go be a fisherman. Go out on a boat and work with your hands because you, you're not gonna, you, you, don't, you don't have an aptitude for God and his word. Today, the children are learning about a passage in Mark where Jesus goes and he finds some fishermen and says, hey, follow me. I'm going to make you fishers of men. He chose these rough, rugged men who, not a lot of degrees, not a lot of letters after their name, but they were willing to drop everything for Jesus. They dropped their nets. They left their dad. I don't know if any of you have ever worked for your dad, but if you ever try to get out of work with your dad, it's like Bosszilla. Like you, you don't just bail on dad and your boss. But when they're one, oh man, you're going to pay. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they left their dad. They left their nets. They left their boats to follow Jesus. At this point, Jesus hasn't done anything. Some of you might be saying, well, yeah, they probably saw the miracles. No. Oh, Jesus, just a guy walking down the street, homeless, turned water into wine previously. Hey, come follow me. All right. You don't have to be super uber intellectual and I'm not downing that at all. See, the, the, the problem is, and, and I'll do a little bit of a tangent here. The problem is you're, you're too much into your books. You got to be, it's all about emotion and experience. Too much into your experience and emotions, you got to get back into the book. And the problem is not either or, it's, it's yes and. It's experiential Christianity with biblical Christianity put together. Your experiences are backed up by the Bible and not vice versa. 
It's not that the Bible's backed up by your experience. That's where you fall into a lot of problems. It is emotional. But to be over-emotional about something that's not true is not biblical. To, to, to lift up an experience that has no root in the Bible that you can't find and can't back up with the Word of God, it might be a fun experience and you might get a high off of it and a rush of adrenaline, but that's not Jesus. And so it's not either or, it's yes. It's yes and. It's both of them together working into conjunction. One of my favorite theologians is a man named A.W. Tozer. Written a ton of books. If you've never read any of his books, please do. Super, uh, just, I read and I go, how does he come up with that stuff? Never went to college. No degrees, no masters of divinity, nothing. Just a guy barely out of high school who loved Jesus and began to read his word. And just read it and just read it and just read it and read books about it. And prayed and went to church. God doesn't need you to be this big college Bible guy. He just needs you to be willing. He just needs you to be willing to drop the nets of your life and follow after him. We're going to read Galatians 1, verses 1 through 5. My clicker dealie is not working, Dan. You want to pass? You want to? Part one, welcome to Galatia. Galatians chapter one, verse one, we'll read through to five, and we'll go from there. Verse one says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me. To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from, our, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I want to make two very simple points today. What is your calling and are you prepared? Some of you might be saying, Pastor Tony, I'm not called to be anything. Oh, yes, you are. Don't give me none of that fake humility stuff. God has called you to do something. It might be in the eyes of man, down here and not up here, but God's called you to do it. In the eyes of God, all jobs are here. The pastor and the janitor are on the same level when it comes to the eyes of God. Okay? The greeter and the sound man are on the same level when it comes to the eyes of God. You need to do your job. But what is your job? How do you know your calling? How do, you, how do you just not you know, become like one of the crazy people who just all of a sudden say, I woke up today and now I'm an apostle. Who says? I do. God does. Uh, can you verify that? Have you done anything that looks like an apostle? No, I just want to be one. Well, of course you want to be one. Of course you want to be the guy who's going out, who's got the most attention. Sure, why wouldn't you desire that? The Bible's clear that there are spiritual gifts that are given to us. You can read 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14. But they're not up to us. You can't just wake up and say, I'm going to be an apostle. I'm going to be an evangelist. I'm going to be a preacher. I'm going to have the gifts of healing today because that's what I choose. Because nobody would ever choose the other gifts that are less extravagant, like the gift of encouragement, the gift of faith. You know what's fun about the gift of faith? You keep having this, you have this faith no matter what's happening all around you. And everybody else is looking at you like, you're crazy. 
Like, no, I just believe that God's for me, not against me. It's actually quite simple. Nobody would choose the lesser in our eyes. They'd always choose the ones that are out in front because we're prideful people. Yeah, we want to help people. Yeah, we want to do the most good. But man, we really want to be seen doing it. And so God is the one who gives out the gifts. God's the one who chooses who becomes what. In Ephesians chapter 4, there are five roles given. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. Some will say pastor, teacher are the same. Whatever. There's five roles given. Okay? We don't get to just choose what we want to be. But here's what you find. Those who are called to be apostles, they do apostles' work, whether they have that title or not. An apostle is someone who is set forth, who goes out and does things like, oh, start churches like Paul did. He went from place to place. He started a church. The church would start and go up, and hey, it's a church. He did the apostolic work, and then he'd go to another place, and the apostle Paul is going forth, and he's starting these churches. Evangelists, you don't just choose to be an evangelist. You could try it. I mean, you could say, I'm not sure of my calling. I feel like maybe it's an evangelist. I'll try that. And then you find out quickly, no, that's not it. I don't want to do this at all. I've called to do something else. You don't get to choose to be a prophet. You don't get to choose to be a pastor. Pastor's pastor. It's what they do. But there's a difference between a title and a duty. Let me give you an example. Dads, you do the work of a pastor, even if you're not a pastor. My son's blown away that not every, everybody's dad is a pastor. He doesn't get that. He's still kind of learning like, oh, okay. Because we have pastor friends, and they're, his friends' dads are pastors too. I guess he just assumes everybody's dad is a pastor. I tell him, no, but every dad does the work of a pastor. What's a pastor do? You go to Psalm 23, you lead the sheep to green grass, to clear waters. It's all symbolic and a metaphor of, of being led into what is good and what is right. It's what, it's what dads do. Dads do the work of a pastor, even though they may not be a pastor. You might go and start stuff. You might be, be used in an apostolic way without being an apostle. Maybe you are, maybe you're not. But if you're one of those go-getters and you start, you like to start stuff up and you like to get things going and you like to be the man behind the scenes who's, who's making sure everything gets done all for the common good of the people and the gospel of Jesus Christ, then maybe, just maybe, you're called to be an apostle. You're a prophet, but you never give prophetic words. You don't understand the gospel. You don't preach it prophetically. Then maybe you're not a prophet. I, I'm, a, I'm called to be a teacher. I just can't teach myself out of a paper bag. Maybe you're not called to be a teacher then. You might have a good desire, as Paul tells, uh, I believe it's Timothy. It's a good desire to be one of these things, but that doesn't mean that you're called to be it because you have that desire. So Paul initially, what he's doing is not defending himself. He's reminding the church in Galatia of who he is. Hey, I'm Paul. Remember me? I helped start that church almost 15 years ago, and I was the one who preached to you the gospel. I was the one who came and did the apostolic work before you. I'm the one that helped get that started. Peace to you, grace to you, all that. But let's remember who I am. Now, Paul's not boasting. Paul's very clear when he gets through his epistles. He, he's going to boast in anything. It's going to be in Jesus. But he's reminding them. Because he knows his calling. Do you know your calling? Do you know what it is? Do you know what God has called you to do? Maybe God has called you to be a mom. Notice that I didn't say just a mom. That was deliberate. Maybe God has called you to be a mom. I can't think of 
anything more glorious than being a mom. Maybe God has called you to be a dad and a husband, and that's your role, and that's what he's called you to be. Maybe God has called you to be somebody who's a giver. Maybe it seems like you know how to, you just know how to make money work for you. And the rest of us just don't, we don't have any aptitude for that. But you just seem to be able to invest and get returns. And, and you're always there. You're always in a place where you can bless other people. Maybe that's what God's called you to be. Maybe you're just a great encourager. Maybe you're the, always the person that no matter how dark things are, you're just saying, you know what, but tomorrow's another day. And you say it without your, you know, your religious platitudes. And you say it without just lip service. You're actually, things are going to be okay. When people talk to you, they're like, you know what, things are going to be okay. What was I thinking? Maybe you just have this calling on your life to be an encourager. What is your calling? You don't get to pick it, but you do need to ask the question, what am I called to do? The Bible's clear. Paul uses the human body as an example. Not everybody's a hand. Not everybody's a foot. Not everybody's a mouth. Not everybody's the eyes. Not everybody's the ears. Everybody's got a part to play. And the church works best when everybody does their part. Paul has this massive conversion. My testimony about my conversion is not, there's not a lot of fireworks. I went to a Bible study in Bakersfield, California. If you've ever been to Bakersfield, California, it's the armpit of California. Okay? When, when the Bible, when they say, can anything good come from Nazareth, I just pretend they're saying Bakersfield. Because nothing good can come from Bakersfield except for maybe Buck Owens. That's pretty much it. I went to a Bible study with my grandmother whom I was visiting. The pastor made the appeal, and it made sense to me, and I gave my life to Jesus that day. It wasn't instantaneous where the next day I woke up with a halo on my head. started a lifelong process where I find myself today. But for Paul, oh man, he's, he's, he's not Paul at the time. He's a man named Saul. Sometimes God converts you so radically that he changes even your name in that sense. Like It's like getting... Hit so hard that your grandkids are going to feel it. Like he got converted so hard it changed his name. So he's actually killing the church. If you think God doesn't love you, look at the story of Paul. He's killing Christians. Like, like really killing Christians. Not just like metaphorically or slandering them. Like he's literally standing by approving the stoning of Christians. Because he believes that the Jewish way is the only way and these people are distorting the truth. So Paul's on this journey to, to get these letters of approval to allow him to go and to persecute anybody who's a Christian. And he has this moment where he goes blind and Jesus meets him. He says, why are you persecuting me? Paul knows instantly that this is Jesus. This is God, not just a holy man, not just a righteous man. This is the God that I grew up learning about. And from that moment on, he's converted. He's now a Christian. The ones he was just killing, he's now one of them. He grows. He, he becomes the Apostle Paul. It gets to a point where he begins to mentor and, 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 and teach other pastors. And there's two epistles, or three epistles rather, First and Second Timothy and um, the book of Titus. We call them pastoral epistles. They're letters written from Paul, not necessarily to the whole church, but to, a, to another pastor, Timothy and Titus. And to Timothy... He tells him in chapter 4 of the second letter he wrote, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is, judge, uh, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing of the kingdom, preach the word, 
Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Know your calling. Be prepared. Timothy, you're a pastor. Be prepared. There's two times you need to be ready to preach the gospel. In season, out of season. It means always. You must always be ready to preach the gospel why you were saved, why you gave your life to Jesus. See, with that conversion, with the story that you have, that testimony, you don't need to know a lot of verses. You just need to know I was a sinner, and now I'm not because of what Jesus did, not because of what I did. But why should we be prepared? 2 Timothy 4 and 3 says, For the time is coming when the people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. If you ever wonder why, why do those people listen to those pastors when they're just teaching lies? Because that's what they want. That's what their hearts are desiring. They want someone to, to tickle their ears. They want to hear something extravagant. They, they, they don't have time for the fact that God became a man and died on a cross for our sins because we're sinners. We need something more than that. We need something more snappy, more trendy. We need something a little more contemporary. I need big explosions. I need a lot of fanfare. I need a suit that costs more than a car. I need a haircut that costs more than my couch. I, 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 I need, th- th- we need that. That's what their heart's desire. What's your heart's desire today? God will give you that. If it's impure, you're going to find out real quick that this is not exactly what I wanted. Verse 5 says, As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist. Paul, or excuse me, Timothy rather, a pastor, but he's doing the work of an evangelist. Going back to the works of an evangelist while not actually being an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Within a few years, the Galatian church had abandoned the gospel because they, they, they wanted something flashy. They wanted something more extravagant, too easy. There's nothing easy about the gospel. I mean, it is. It's a, it's a gift. We know that. It's free. It's a free gift. We know that too. Um, but while it's free, it's not cheap. And while it's easy, that doesn't mean it's not complicated or, or vice versa. It can be quite complicated, but it can be quite easy too. For some, it's just it's just too easy. I gotta I gotta light a candle or something. Like I, I can get one of those candles at the grocery store. Like you guys here don't know about this, but in California, there's whole aisles dedicated to to candles with saints on them. You can buy them here, but not like in California. There there's a picture of every saint on every jar of candle you can imagine, and you buy that candle. It's two bucks, and you light the candle, and everything's gonna be okay. That makes sense to the, the nature of man. I gotta do something. So I'll light a candle. So I'll, I'll say a I'll say a scripted prayer. You know, I'll do it on this day or that day with a holy man or in a holy place. No. You're never more holy than you are when you're in Jesus. And that's the key. Are you in Christ? Romans 8 and 1, one of my favorite verses. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That phrase, in Christ, occurs some 200, almost 300 times in the New Testament. And it's referring to us being in Christ. Are you in Christ today? We know we're sinners. You know that. I've made it clear. The Bible makes it clear. Your conscience makes it clear. The Holy Spirit makes it even more clear. But ask yourselves, 
Am I in Christ? Am I really following Jesus? Am I following the Jesus of the Bible? Because the Mormons preach Jesus. It's just not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jehovah Witnesses preach Jesus. It's just not the Jesus of the Bible. Different guy, same name. Am I following Jesus? It's not a witch hunt. I'm not going to come to your house, knock on the door. Are you following Jesus? Did you find him yet? I'm not going to do that. This is between you and the Lord. I would implore you to go back to the word of God and find out for yourself. Don't be like the, the others who just sit and just, yay, the pastor's talking and I get to go to lunch. He's done finally. No. Go back to the word. Write stuff down. Take notes. Go back to it. Ephesians 2 and 1, we'll end here. Then we'll take our tithes, because we didn't do that yet. Got kind of excited about preaching the word. Forgot about taking up tithes and offerings. We'll do that as soon as we're done here. So what is the good news? Do you know what the gospel is? If, if someone, were to come in, someone were to come in and say, hey, I'm bringing the gospel, and then begin to preach something, would you know if it was the gospel or not? Let me give you a really easy test, a really easy way to test that. Ephesians 2 and 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, you was, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind." Romans 5 and 8 says that, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The good news is not that you're a good person who just needs to get better. The good news is that first there's bad news. We're sinners. The good news is that Jesus died for those sins. You continue on in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4, but, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. There's that phrase, in Christ. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus again. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are the, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That is the gospel. The good news, you were a sinner. The good news, or excuse me, the bad news, you were a sinner. Good news, Jesus died for sinners. That he didn't wait for you to get cleaned up to find you acceptable he found you unacceptable and cleaned you up. He found you in a place of sin and brought you out of that place. You were condemned to hell, and by grace he has taken you from that which you deserved and given you that which you do not deserve, which is the grace of God and his love. So I'm going to ask you here today as we close, what is your calling? Are you prepared? And do you know the gospel? If you don't know the gospel, anything that comes through will tickle your ears and it sounds fancy and my, that guy's awful sharp. He's quite the speaker. He can, he can, he's got all the funny jokes and he's got all the experiences, but 
Is he preaching the gospel? That weight is on your shoulders. I, I could teach you and preach to you until I'm blue in the face, and someday I just might. But at the end of the day, it's up to you. Stand with me. Let's close in prayer. Let's, let's take our tithes and offerings. I want to ask you today, I want to just be very blunt with you. Are you right with Jesus? Are you in Christ? If you come to the conclusion that maybe, just maybe, I am not, I just want to pray for you. I just want to pray with you as we all pray together. For those of you who have given your life to Jesus, this is a moment to pray for those who maybe haven't made that decision. Maybe for those who are still have questions. Maybe for those who, who are, are not the microwave Christian, instantaneous, but they're the crockpot Christian. They're, they're working on it. Things are simmering. Things are coming together. But when you're done, it's going to be awesome. I want you to pray for those. We don't know who they are. That's sort of the good thing. Don't make any assumptions. Could be the person sitting next to you for all you know. But let's pray. There is no script. There is no specific set words that you have to say for God to love you. God loves you already. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray today that, that first of all, that all of us here would give our lives to you. I praise you that the good news that we were once sinners, but you have died for us. That by response in faith and in belief, Lord, you have purchased us back from the grips of death. That even though one day we'll go and these bodies will die, they will be transformed. They will be made new. But that through Jesus, we could indeed be born again. Not the way we were the first time, but we can be born of the Spirit. That the Holy Spirit can be given to us to do the good works you've called us to do. That we could give up the fight of constantly trying to be good enough to know that you love us and we get to go and do good. I pray tonight, Jesus, or today, Jesus, that you would be glorified and that you'd meet your people where they're at. For those who have never given their lives to Jesus, that today would be their day. For those who maybe did it once before and that was it, well, that today would be the day. For those who have been trying and doing their best and trucking along every day, that you would give them peace as you come alongside them and take those burdens and walk with them. I pray today, Lord, that you would make disciples in this place, that we wouldn't be like the Galatians, although by nature we are, that we wouldn't try to make the gospel into our image, but that we'd see the good news of Jesus and accept it at that. Jesus, we love you. In your name we pray, amen.